Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. How are you feeling? I mean, I feel like that's a loaded question. Why are you asking me that? I Honestly, I wasn't going anywhere. All but- right. All right. Okay. No, I, I, you know, we, we often say like, Hey, do you have a preamble? Do you not know? And then there's sometimes like, Oh, we're going to joke. We're going to surprise each other. So don't know where we're going. My thing this week that I want to start with is someone's defense of you and your voice in that it does not sound like Gwyneth Paltrow's, even though a lot of people think that your voice does sound like Gwyneth Paltrow's. So <laughs> I had, I want, I had this prepared that I would like to read someone's Really, I mean, this was quite a defense of you. Well, or of, uh, yeah, the distinction between, if you missed this, uh, I pointed out last week that there are people who tell me that I sound like Gwyneth Paltrow on this podcast, Mm -hmm. which it's starting to increase in numbers, the number of people who have said this. But yeah, there was somebody who disagreed. So Phyllis, shout out to you, because this was your email. Oh my God, I paused the podcast five minutes into write. I couldn't control myself. Duanna, please ignore the comments about you sounding like Gwyneth. Her insipid hi guys at the start of that podcast is enough to make me punch my own face, let alone hers. The way she thinks speaking quietly in that robotic, condescending way will make us listen more closely. Thank Christ someone over at Goop clued in and they have another member of the team doing the interview because doing the interviewing because no one would listen. You do not sound like her. Fuck her. And let's not forget that fucking hair. It makes me crazy. That was a lot of fucks. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> Phyllis. Wow. Um, I do not know if anyone has ever defended uh, Gwyneth, no, defended Duanna against Gwyneth accusations so vociferously, but you have just come through Ride or die for Duanna. And Duanna, I think that you owe Phyllis a a thank you and some gratitude. I mean, (laughs) thank you by all means. I guess the question is, though, there's support and passion and everything, but is she right? Maybe I do sound like this person I don't want to, but, uh, you know, it makes me want to try it. Like, hi, guys. Is it like that or is it more like, hi, guys? I'm... (laughs) I know she's not much for consonants. I know that. Nobody asked you to mimic, but I I feel like your mimic urge is now rising up. Well, now I, yeah, I want to see how close I can come and whether I can distance myself. Maybe we'll see. Actually, no, Phyllis would kill us if you did an entire podcast um, in the voice of Gwyneth Paltrow. You might, we might lose Phyllis. It's true. I don't want to lose Phyllis. No, and I don't want to embody that kind of spirit. I feel like uh, there's... You would have some uh, Chinese astrology idiom for me about how that's not safe to do. So I I will not do that. All right. Shall we get right into it? We've got a lot to cover this week. Let's go. So we are recording on Sunday. This will be posted tomorrow, which is June 4th. Tomorrow, Serena Williams 
has advanced past the third round of Roland Garros, the French Open, and she will face Maria Sharapova. We are podcasting without, obviously, any knowledge of the outcome of that match, but everybody's talking like this is the French Open. Like, whatever happens, whoever advances on the men's and women's side, this is like the marquee matchup that everybody's talking about. So it is one of the scourges of uh, my place in my family that I don't follow tennis the way that they do. Uh, I don't know how I missed the gene. Everybody else knows what's going on. But who has she been playing up to this point? Who are the the matches? Obviously, like the headline last week was the cat suit that she wore in yeah. her return, which we'll get more into. But who has she played thus far that Sharapova is the uh, what she's poised to do next? Well, she has her first match was against Plastova. Then it was Barty. And then on Saturday… Are we supposed to know the… If we're not tennis people, are they rising no. stars? Are they up-and-comers? Or are they like legit contenders? Oh, I'm sorry. Pliskova. See, I said Plistova. Or I even said… No, actually, it's… Yeah, I said Pliskova. And it's Plistova. Anyway, um, who okay, are they? Um, Leviosa. <laughs> who are they? I… I do not think that if you're not fully immersed in tennis, this is these are not marquee names. Although, um, in the second and third round, she played seeded players and not low seeds, right? She played the 17 seed and the 11 seed. That said, <laughs> Serena Williams is like, I don't think that she's ever been when she's playing regularly lower than like the third seed. So this is all relative to who Serena is, but... Again, um, in in the days leading up to the French Open, a lot of the talk was she has to come in unseated, which is a conversation in and of itself about work. And when you take time off work to have a child, should you fall back on the accomplishments and achievements you had at the time of your departure? So she was number one in the world when she left. Because she hasn't played in 16 months or majors in 16 months, she came into this, the French Open decided you would be unseated. And the reason this is a thing is because when you're an unseated player, you have to play way more advanced players, in theory, in the pool in the early rounds. Like you have to earn your way up, basically. You have to… Right. It's like in a video game, you have to beat X number of levels, right? When you yeah. start from the beginning, ostensibly. Well, the quality of the levels is higher than what you would face if you go in seated. Um, that seems… So what I read, what I understood, and you tell me, because again, you follow tennis more closely, but basically she lost her ranking, her seed, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, not seat. No. Seed. Yeah. I don't understand the etymology. Okay. Se Seating? Yeah. Um, what, where would that come from? I'm asking. Seeds. Uh, geez, that's a really good question. I don't know where the seeding comes from. I'm sure we will look this up and yeah. add it as a, an addendum on the show notes, but uh, I just want to record that I, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. But so if she's low ranked… And she, why is it higher quality playing that mm -hmm. she has to do than if she was than if she was seated number one? If you're seated number one, for example, then mm -hmm. it goes. You would play the 
and I'm putting this in quotes, the worst player in right. the tournament. The number 16 in a, That's in right. a bracket. Yes. Exactly. Right. So it's one, one. Yes. In the NCAA bracket, for example, the top seed plays the 16 seed. Right. So it's like that. When Serena is unseeded, mm-hmm. then in theory, her first match would be the top player in the tournament or a, a, a player at the top in seeding. But so she's so her opponents are going to be harder and harder and harder. I and see. We, uh, sure, but there are people uh, who believe that the fact that she was unseated in the first place is, you know, kind of sexist bullshit. They they think it's unfair. She wasn't unseated because um, she failed a drug test and was suspended. She was unseated because she went to have a family, which. You know, people do sooner or later. This is obviously, we don't have to draw the link here. This is obviously going to be very clear to everybody. That's right. Um, You know, women who choose to have a family have to physically stop working for some period of time. It's especially interesting with Serena because, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, Marissa Mayer, remember at uh, at Yahoo, Yahoo, who famously took two weeks and was like, it's all I need. It's fine. It's no big deal. Um, She basically, like, took a couple of extended long weekends. Yeah. Uh, And then there's Serena, who, as you said, didn't play for 16 months. I don't know how far into her pregnancy she was playing. Do you remember? Yeah. So she won the Australian Open in January of 2017. Um, At the time, she was around 10 weeks pregnant. So, you know, that's why everybody was like, holy fuck. Then that was the last match she played. And then she started playing some exhibition matches about four or five months after she had the baby. Right. Uh, And what I love about that and having that conversation is that her job is a physical one. There are maybe jobs that you can go back to X number of weeks or months or whatever after you've had a child. But her body, which is her work tool, was busy doing something else. That's right. Um, so it's really, it's obviously, it's richly, it's rich and interesting in many, many ways. But yeah, the it jumped out at me early that people thought it was unfair that she lost her seed uh, just for doing something that one assumes yeah. could very well be in the paths of any woman who's still in the game in her 30s. And it's applicable to other professions. Obviously. So, and this has been the conversation. You take a year or whatever less, if you're in the United States, off to have your baby. Should that delay your promotion? Should that take you out of the conversation about a promotion to begin with? Um, In sport in particular, if you play it this way, or if you persist with, unseating players who leave the game because they go and have a family, does that condense or shorten the career lifespan of women, period? It certainly doesn't happen on the men's side, biologically, duh, right? Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer. Rafael Nadal does not have children, but Roger Federer has three. No, he has no, two four, sets of twins. No, four, he yeah. Has two sets of twins. Identical twins. Which is a goddamn nightmare anyway. Lottery. Whatever, children are a blessing, it's great but also uh, is a goddamn nightmare, but not for him. That's right. And so in terms of your body and the career, like that is not worrisome. 
He's not losing his seating. He's not worried about um, a delay in his advancement the way women have to be worried about a delay in their advancement, whether it's on the court or in the boardroom. So what Serena has shown us or this conversation about Serena is igniting many conversations in many other workplaces about work and parenthood and the time it takes and how perhaps the system, many systems in many workplaces have been set up unfairly to prevent women from moving ahead. Uh, Yeah. I mean, no question that is the case. And I think one of the reasons that we're having this conversation over and over now these days is because women who are pursuing higher powered careers uh, often are putting off the having of children until they're in kind of higher profile roles, which is a double-edged sword. You take that time because maybe you feel like that's when you can finally step back or let's be real because the economics of taking any time off and PS supporting a child for 18 to 25 years is such that no, people aren't ready at 24 or 25 the way they might have been a generation ago. But I'm interested in it in the case of Serena specifically because this has never come up in tennis before, right? It has come up in tennis in the sense of, yes, people have had children and come back to win uh, majors, but they were all below 30. Like who? Who's an example here? Uh, Lindsay Davenport, for example. Right. But she was, as you say, below 30. Right. Serena Williams at press time is 36. 36. And, you know, I don't know the lifespan of most female tennis players, but I think it could have been fairly understood that she might have played out her entire tennis career and then had a child, right? That this might have been the start of her retirement. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that might have been a reasonable assumption. She clearly has pointed out, like, don't put your assumptions on me. Like, that's right. Having a kid is not stopping me. It, I'm not, I'm pausing my continued tennis trajectory. I'm not, uh, I'm not closing any chapters. So that's what makes this so different and so interesting. Yes. And, Serena Williams is the greatest all time for many reasons. One of those reasons is the longevity of her career. Right. Very few people are able to play at such a high level in such a sustained manner over the course of, it's going to be 20 years. Um, Next year, in 2019, it'll be the 20th anniversary of her first U.S. Open title. So very few people can have a tennis career that is 20 years long and play at the same level. I mean, arguably, when she won the Australian Open in January of 2017 while pregnant with Olympia, she was in better form at that time, at that age, 35, than she was when she was 25. Sure. Like, so, which is kind yeah. of unheard of for that's right. athletes generally. Right? right. So that's why this is an anomaly in many ways and yet so very relatable because the greatest all time, even she has to deal with the ramifications of what happens to work and your body and then getting back into it when you go away and have a baby. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit because obviously we talk quite a bit about you know, show business and entertainment. And Lord knows we have heard people say, 
oh, it was hard to get back into shape after I had my baby for the new season of the show I'm taping or for a movie role that I had lined up or whatever that looks like. Uh, Often what that means is thinness, right? That's what they are talking about. Or Victoria's Secret Models. I feel like I've heard that come up, that they're like, oh, am I going to be thin enough to walk on the runway? Right. I'm not trying to minimize that because that's their job. That's their job and that's their livelihood. And being physically fit or at least being physically comparable to the way that you were before you had the baby is... Uh, yeah, it's tantamount to whether or not you can work anymore. So whether or not we agree with that, those are the job restrictions. Yeah. But this is fascinating because it's something else. It is not just about getting your body to look the way it did, but getting it to perform the way it yes. did. And for many, many women who have been pregnant, uh, their bodies, every you will hear women say over and over, well, my body is different afterwards. Things are different. Maybe sometimes things don't look the way they did. Maybe sometimes your body just reacts differently. Mm-hmm. I know people who say, you know, I have different food tastes than I used to, or I this or that. Sometimes things shift uh, and it's not better or worse. It's just different. But she is not just working to have a body that is as fit as it was. It also needs to be the set of tools that it was. Yeah. And that's amazing to me because she's essentially playing almost with a whole new body. You know, I, muscle memory is a thing, but does it, does it go away after that long? Um, you know, do you have to relearn ways to do things that were, that seemed very elementary? Like, it seems like there's a movie in the making here, right? Like the re, the rediscovery of, climbing back to the top. Yeah. And in fact, you've been uh, really, really delighted with the show. Yeah. Right? The documentary or the five-part series, HBO, uh, Being Serena. Mm -hmm. So this is why I I thought Serena was so perfect for this podcast because what's happened in the last week is a convergence of so many of her work elements coming together in time specifically for her return at Roland Garros. So yes, five weeks ago, Being Serena premiered um, on HBO, timed so that the final episode would occur when she came back to Roland Garros. But also what was timed for that time was her cover on Glamour Mm -hmm. um, and the launch of her online clothing line. Right. SerenaWilliams.com or Serena.com. You know, you guys can find it. You don't need us to give you the URL, but her own clothing line All of it came together because, of course, Serena Williams has, um, like so many celebrities, understood the value of timing. It's strategy. Yes. It's about, yeah, keeping a vested interest, having reasons to continue to talk about this person at the right time uh, so that everybody is going to be watching, as you say, probably as you're listening to the match. And my mistake, that was Harper's Bazaar, not Glamour. And yet the point was, all of this happened in the same week that she came back to Roland Garros, the magazine shoot, which was in service of her clothing line, the clothing line launching, and of course, everybody caring about her more than they normally do. We always care about Serena more than they normally do because she's competing and because, of course, we have been following over the last five weeks her road back to competition. So... You said, Duanna, this could be a movie. And in fact, this is what they documented 
um, they started when she was pregnant and they are shooting her throughout her pregnancy. She's having a great time planning for it. Um, the baby comes and she has major complications after childbirth mm-hmm. because she has a history of blood clots and embolisms. She was able to recognize that she was in fact having a pulmonary embolism. So they had to do some surgery and some complicated shit. She basically almost died. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So she's almost died. Um, she's basically on bed rest for six weeks after having mm-hmm. the baby, which means that she can't get her body back to our point, to your point. Oh, right. I mean, six weeks is the bare minimum yeah. anyway, but yes. And she's got like a thing. Um, they show you the doctors coming to her house. She's got a thing that's inserted um, around the incision to reduce the chance of blood clots. Mm-hmm. And it's in there for weeks. Right. And it hasn't been taken out. So, you mean like a shunt? Like, uh, yeah. Not, mm-hmm. I don't know the exact term. I can't remember what the exact term is, but there's a mechanism, like a, a device inside right. her body that is helping her not get blood clots. Right. So she has, she doesn't get that taken out for like almost two months. Mm-hmm. And then she's planning her wedding. Mm-hmm. So then she gets married. And then finally, she starts seeing about getting back on the court and tr- doing some light training. Um, initially, when she was pregnant, she had said, I'm going to be back to defend my Australian Open title. That never happened because she couldn't have foretold, no one could, that she would need a C-section and then have a pulmonary embolism. But we are seeing in these five episodes what Serena has gone through, which she would not have anticipated when she signed off on this documentary at the very beginning. No. However, um, a documentary, even though it is documenting what is really happening, uh, any documentary filmmaker will tell you, you still have to tell a story. And documentaries that you know and love, even though they are documenting true things, they still take you on a narrative arc. They still take you through uh, a story where somebody changes, where something happens. Uh, And so listening to you talk about this, I feel really anxious. I feel a lot of pressure because the only satisfying narrative end to, oh, I had all these problems, I had complications, is... And then in the end, she gets it back. She wins. She yeah. she gets back to where she needs to be. And Serena is, you know, intrinsically somebody who understands that. Nobody learns those kind of stories about triumph and resurgence and so forth better than athletes, right? Like that's every Olympic pack you've ever watched yeah. is about like heartbreak and strain and yeah. tears and then the triumph. Yeah. So she knows that. And that's an enormous, shocking amount of pressure yeah. for not just for her performance on the court, but for a satisfying narrative end to the documentary. And in a very, very tiny, microscopic way, us too. We are, again, recording this. We don't know what's going to happen. You may be listening to this on Monday afternoon after the match between Serena and Sharapova has concluded, and maybe Serena did not prevail. Which means what? If she doesn't prevail, then what? And this is, to me, this is what's so interesting, that they time this to end the week of her kicking off the French Open. As you said, it's an enormous amount of pressure. Clearly, the outcome that you would want if you are a fan of Serena and if you are investing in this documentary is, 
oh, I've, I've invested five weeks into this documentary that they've invested a year into to kick off her French Open run, and she's out in the fourth round. And yet, what they couldn't have foretold, but they did work into the storytelling, and what Serena worked into the storytelling and allowed us to see in the storytelling is that narrative of, you know what? I didn't know I would be this before, but now that I'm going through the process of having a child and figuring out how to raise a child while managing my career, I can be perhaps a little bit of a representative and a picture of what other women have to go through. I really love that because it is always the X factor. You can train and work as hard as you can and, you know, be the hardest worker. You can have things down to a science. You can plan for all kinds of eventualities. You know, you can have all the nannies in place. That's the common refrain about people who work in high-paid careers, whether they are executives or athletes or actors. Oh, they have so many nannies. They have so many whatever. It's true that some of the logistics may be easier, but you can't plan for your body and how it will be, whether that is physical or mental. Mm -hmm. um, you know, postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety befall a lot of people, and you can't predict that. That is something you can't factor into your work performance. You can't factor in how your body will respond to whatever you choose to do, whether that's breastfeeding or mm -hmm. getting up in the night with your child or whatever. They're all – what I love about this – exploration is no matter who you are, you are navigating that stuff for the first time. There's no way to yeah. skip that, that process and that learning curve. And so I love that that is on display because whether you are, yeah, a physically uh, phenomenal human being like Serena Williams clearly is an exceptional athlete and like physical person, you still can't predict what will happen once this sort of seismic shift has taken place. And again, I'm not talking about like the seismic shift of becoming a mother because that's different for everybody. I'm talking about the… The molecular restructuring yeah, of your body. That's right. Yes. The physical sort of railroad yeah. that happens in your physical body, with it, which in her case is married to her work. I, in particular, was texting you like mad about this, um, this documentary because… There is a series of scenes here where Serena is working, training, and trying to get back into form, and her coach, is uh, Patrick, is on her because he feels that there has been a limitation. He identifies a, he identifies a barrier to her being able to get back to the next levelness that she once had. And it Sorry, was I just want to point out that he's a man. He's a man. Sure. And this was, I was very conflicted watching this. I was offended for her and yet I understood his position. And I don't know if that's offside and if people are going to get mad at me, but I understood his position in the sense of she told him, you are my coach. And as my coach, I need you to take me back or help me get back to winning Grand Slam championships. Right. It's all real clear what the goals are. That's right. right. And so he says to her, you asked me to help you to be the best. 
here is what I think needs to be done for you to get back to being the best, Mm -hmm. which is, and I'm quoting, he says to her, you're too heavy. And what has to happen is you stop breastfeeding. It's too much for you to move. It's, he's, and he, English is not his first language. So when he does speak English, it's very abrupt Mm -hmm. and it's direct. There are no niceties couched in here. Right. Right. And I'm watching this on TV. And I'm watching this. It's a documentary. Nothing is being glossed over. He's just telling, saying it to her face. And it's a very emotional thing. She starts crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and she starts reacting to what he's saying to her. And she's conflicted. Because she says to him, I've been working so hard. He said, I know. She's like, it's just this one thing that I have to change. But it's such a big thing. Right. It's a very personal decision. Um. And she starts talking about how it's been hard for her for the first time to control her weight. Mm-hmm. She's reassuring him that she's not lazy, which is bananas to me because Serena Williams at this point is already the greatest. And I, the fact that she is still worried about people thinking that she's lazy. Well, I just um, have to interject with something that you and I have talked about. That, yeah. Um, you know who's never worried about appearing lazy? Lazy people. Mm-hmm. It is only ever people who yes. work really, really hard who are anxious about whether or not they appear lazy. Yep. I've never seen somebody who I really think, like, you do the bare minimum. Yeah. Who is worried about no. being seen to do the bare minimum. They're too fucking lazy to worry about being lazy. Kind of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I love that because it's just, like, that kind of anxiety is – Indicative of somebody who is questioning themselves all the time. Yes. Am I being lazy? Am I doing enough? Am I pushing myself hard mm-hmm. enough? Clearly yeah. cycling through and clearly wanting it so bad. Yeah. So then. So then, and again, to go back to I was conflicted, right? Because I, on the one hand, I understood where he's coming from because this is a goal she said she wanted to attain. Right. And he has a job to do. Yeah. And his job is to say the same way you would say cut booze. Yeah. Or go, get more sleep. That's right. He's like, cut your breastfeeding. Right. But it's so personal. Like, it's like the mother and child feeding situation anyway. Well, in addition to which, I'm obligated to point out that maybe for her, breastfeeding and weight are linked. And I understand, again, that he's not criticizing her body. Yeah. He's saying that she needs to be lighter in order to move the way she needs to move. That's right. To play the game, right? Not because he has comments about how she looks or whatever. Right. But not, there are many women who uh, lose weight while breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. There are women who retain lots of weight while breastfeeding and then it falls off after they stop. There are many women who never lose the same weight the same way. Right. Regardless of what they're doing. So what is even harder is that he's presenting something that may well be the solution or may not be the solution. What if she stops and it doesn't change things? Yeah. That's hard. So then what happens is that there's a voiceover and she says, I've been a tennis player basically my whole life. I've been a mom for eight months. Mm. Honestly, I shouldn't have to choose between the two, between these two identities. And I think I'm learning that in almost every way, I don't. So what she ends up doing is she ends up deciding to stop breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. But here's her rationalization for that, which I texted you to you. 
and you were at an event and you texted me back and you said, I'm in a bathroom at an event and this is making me cry, Mm. which was so moving to me. So let me read the quote. Mm -hmm. The quote is, breastfeeding is an incredibly personal thing. The connection that it gives me to Olympia, it's been one of the most magical things I've ever experienced. But the truth is, I miss my body, being able to do other kinds of amazing things. I miss playing tennis. Mostly, I miss winning. And I want to do that again. So this is me realizing what I have to do. Yeah, I remember you reading it aloud makes me remember how I felt when you texted it to me. Uh, And look, this is why this is compelling television, because she's saying a thing that feels really kind of transgressive to say, to say, I miss the person I was before I became a parent. It is really difficult to be able to say that, especially because, uh, as you know, the narrative is that there's no greater calling than being a parent or because there are people who wish they could become parents and don't have the ability to do so or find it not so easy. Uh, It can be really daunting to say there's a part of me that I really miss and that I want to go back to. And I also feel like I I wouldn't have said you know, moments ago that there's anything I can teach Serena Williams, God. (laughs) But one of the things that I know, even though I'm new-ish in a parenting role, is that no one thing makes you not a parent. No one choice uh, about not breastfeeding or about going going back back to work work or when you do that or how you choose to, you know, have a kid in whatever, in daycare or give them Lunchables or whatever the hell. No one thing can separate you from being that child's parent uh, unless you know, unless you choose not to be that child's parent. And even then, uh, it is, I love letters that I sometimes get, uh, when I'm writing about names from people who say, oh, I really want to be, I want to have the same last name. I want us all to be a family. And sometimes there are letters that come after the fact and where women say, oh, of course we're a family. Like the names have nothing to do with it. There's nothing you can do, no choice you can make that makes that connection any less strong. And I love the range of emotions that happens through that, through that small voiceover. And I love the reverberation that I hope that it will have because to me, I'm watching this. I'm a woman. I don't have children. I will not have children. But I do, in a small way, understand through my friends and through having a woman's body myself and the fucking crazy shit that happens to it I just wanted to point out that you just gave a really dirty look to your pelvis just now. Like, you were just so annoyed. Yeah, I'm so fucking annoyed with, like, my body parts, specifically my reproductive body parts right now, and I haven't even reproduced. But at the same time, and this had so much of an effect on me, I wonder the effect that someone like Serena showing these elements of her work and personal life in this documentary will have, because remember… This is through HBO Sports. So it is an HBO, I mean, HBO aired it, but it's the division of HBO, which is HBO Sports, because, of course, she's an athlete. 
But that means that that division, the people producing it, mm-hmm. the eyeballs, we're going. the eyeballs that were on it, mm-hmm. you know that this is still predominantly a male-driven field. A, it's male-driven, and B, women in this space are not talking about this, right? That's right. I mean, uh, again, uh, figure skaters are largely never going to get back on the ice post-children. Like, that's not a – they often retire, right, or go pro. I don't mean they never skate again, but they're not in the same level of competition. That's right. Or, uh, I don't know, like a – skiers like I, I don't know or or often maybe they're female athletes in team sports and this is not something that is profiled mm-hmm. and this conversation about how do I get back there no it is very fair to say this may be the first time it's being yes, explored that's right and we're exploring it with her for the first time because as I said everybody who's a new parent mm-hmm. is a new parent yes for the first time you can't skip over that experience that's right So what she's doing is that she's giving us this glimpse, but she's doing it with HBO Sports, knowing that probably through this uh, outlet, the chances of us having a wider male audience and a production team behind the scenes is greater than if it were done, whatever, through like good housekeeping. And, (laughs) (laughs) And so... These are the conversations that she's starting with in an environment where people can come together and have an understanding, a more clear understanding of what it means to work as a woman and be a parent. And the thing that is so amazing about it is, and again, I come back to that transgressive, and I'm using semi-quotes there, uh, the thing that's so great about that comment is that There's a narrative in a lot of workplaces that are entertainment-based or sports-based or not that are entirely corporate. There's a narrative that maybe women don't want to go back to work Mm -hmm. or that they want to spend more time with their kids than they do at work or that she won't mind that we're passing her over for promotion because after all, doesn't she want more time with her children? Right. That narrative still exists. It's still pervasive. Mm -hmm. You don't hear people shouting about it. But you do hear it. Yeah. Uh, or you hear somebody say, you know, and she, she, yeah, she, she never took time off with her kids. She did whatever as though that's something to be praised and challenged. What I love about this and the eyeballs that you point out are maybe on it is that Serena is being bold at saying, no, of course I still want to win. Of course I still have all the desires that I always did to be the greatest of all time and to have this relationship with my daughter and to be Mm -hmm. her parent. I can have both. And to her point, I don't have to choose between them. I pointing out that those desires still exist and that she should be allowed to have them both is, you know, yeah, that's a big fucking staunch step for feminism that I'm delighted to see. And yes, in the context of HBO Sports, as you point out. And how long then, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's next week, but how long before that thinking and that evolution of the idea of what a woman might want as a parent and as an executive or an architect or as an artist, 
hopefully, eventually that starts to like travel beyond athletics. As we said, the reason why we wanted to talk about this is because this is so applicable in so many areas of work where when women are having their babies, but also, but I still want to get that case. I still want the same caseload. I still want to argue for that point. I still want to lead that meeting. I still want to be the project manager. But you know, what's so funny is you are saying all that in, in a way that is slight hyperbole and in a way that women often don't get to, but you do wind up having to shout those things from the rooftops in so many words because people kind of look at you askance. I've been there. Like, you know, well, but that's going to be like in October or whatever. So I don't know if you're going to be ready or you're going to be wanting to even, you're probably going to not even want to. Fuck you. I will tell you what I want. Yeah. I will tell you that I am happy to take the travel or the out of town job or the overnight to, you know, cut the last minute piece or whatever it is. I will make my decisions about how that's going to affect me and my family and my job. Don't make the decisions for me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women uh, are mentally saying all those things that you said. I do want the this. I do want the that. But find that in the workplace, they're not yet being asked. So yes, maybe, maybe we get to a point where somebody finds that they're actually being asked instead of having it assumed for them. Yeah. Maybe. On a final note, because of this, I would like to point out, which is something that I know you don't like to talk about, but I will say that I greatly admired you for how it was almost not blasé, but it was so business as usual during your pregnancy and afterwards, or it was like, yeah, okay, these are still the deadlines. I'll let you know if I can't meet them. But unless I say otherwise, we're still doing uh, a column every week, three times a week, and I'm still going to be writing this piece about this, that, and the other. And it was so very undramatic that that was the tone that you set for yourself. Like, I'm not expecting any changes. Here is what my intention is, and I will let you know otherwise. And, you know, uh, yeah, I think that that was partly to see what that would look like. Like, make no mistake, I I did a bunch of stuff in advance because who are we kidding? Like, it's it's very unpredictable to begin with. Uh, you sort of give yourself some some categories. But, you know, the, the I'll let you know is, yeah, you don't know how you're going to feel. I had an uncomplicated situation. Uh, some people don't. Uh, I... My child had an uncomplicated first few months of birth. Some kids don't. So I think it's, you can set intentions for yourself, but one of them definitely has to be to be easygoing with yourself because you don't know, as Serena didn't know, right? Like her, her predictions. And I certainly hope that, you know, I'll be back to defend my Australian Open uh, title. I certainly hope that doesn't, you know, rankle her that that didn't happen because God, we, there are things you can plan for, but those are some of the ones that you can't. And so I appreciate that part of what she's showing and part of what I hope we are showing and, and uh, Laney gossip by having sort of, you know, people at different points in their lives and, and parenting lives and so forth is 
you can't know. So being flexible with yourself is actually the the strongest choice. Does that make sense? Yep. And don't ask for permission for that. Yeah, no. It, yeah. It's, that's easier said than done. Yeah. But yeah, be willing to make the game time decision after the fact when you get there rather than guilting yourself into where you think you should be. But, you know, as we say, there's still some pressure. And as you say, you know, on Monday, as you're listening to this, she is playing or has played Maria Sharapova. What if she doesn't win? Then she will see her at Wimbledon. <laughs> like, she's back on tour. So um, what we've accomplished here already, she's won three matches. Uh-huh. Um, and it has been widely acknowledged by everyone that you can see she is not in the form that she was in before getting pregnant or when she was pregnant at 10 <laughs> weeks and won the Australian Open. Right, right, right. So um, there's still some rust to shake off and she's been shaking it off with every match. She will still like bring in some rust um, into this match with Maria Sharapova. So yeah, she could very well lose. But the point is, is that she's sent the message oh, I'm on my way. I'm going to get there. So whether it's here at this tournament or in two months at Wimbledon or in a month at Wimbledon, just know I'm not retiring. Right. She's back in the game. Oh, yeah. With an added level of difficulty. And a cat suit. And P.S., by the way, the cat suit, while awesome, is also in service of those blood clots. It's for circulation. Right. Compression. Yes. That makes perfect sense. So it shows you that physically she's still working out the kinks from what happened and, you know, having carrying and delivering and recovering from having Olympia. And still she's managed to make it to the fourth round. Um, like I'm a Serena Stan, so I'm already calling it a win when you come back at your first major after what happened to her and she's making it into the fourth round. But again, I'm hoping she's going to advance. If she doesn't advance, though, it's not like she's going to have a press conference right after saying, I'm done. This is all I wanted to accomplish. Hell fucking no. Right. If she doesn't, as you say, she goes to Wimbledon. And meanwhile, she started this conversation. That's right. Win all around. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, look, last week we, now we know in hindsight, prematurely declared a winner. And uh, that winner was Drake. Oh, <laughs> well. We've just declared Serena across the board a winner. Regardless of what's happening That's by right. the time you listen to this podcast. Pretty sure that next week we won't have anything different to say about our assessment of Serena. Unlike last week, when we, now that we know, in hindsight, prematurely declared a winner, and that was Drake. So last week on this podcast, Drake had just released his diss track um, in response to Pusha T's Infrared, 
He did it in less than 24 hours. He was riding high. He had a great weekend. And our podcast basically expired <laughs> uh, last Monday. It ceased to be relevant because Pusha T released his diss track response to Drake's diss track, which is called The Story of Adidon, and basically destroyed Drake. And so we want to sort of pick back up the Drake conversation, but in relationship to somebody else who did not have also a winning week, and that is Samantha B, who I also think a week ago, if you had talked to us and asked us about the state of Samantha B's career and her show, we would have been like, oh, Samantha B, all good. It's funny, you know, I know why we're linking these two stories, and I think there's a lot of crossover here, but I kind of still think Samantha Bee's all good. Uh, obviously, the story we're talking about is that uh, after the story of uh, the children uh, who are being separated from their parents at the border uh, by ICE uh, and who are, you know, being held in essentially detention centers while seeking asylum, uh, Ivanka Trump posted a photo with her son that was you know, tone deaf and ignorant at best, but was believed by many to be a calculated kind of fuck you move. And Samantha B on her show this week called her out on it, specifically using the term feckless cunt. Right. And this happened on the heels of Roseanne's tweet raging about uh, Valerie Jarrett, resulting in the cancellation of Roseanne from the ABC lineup. And so people were like, hey, or some people were like, hey, Samantha B just did the same thing, so Samantha B should be canceled as well. You know, it, just adding Roseanne to the conversation about this, I love how fast things are happening. Like, that was swift. That Those tweets by Roseanne were early Tuesday morning. Mm -hmm. uh, she blames Ambien. Uh, and by 1 p.m. Eastern time, the show was canceled. That's right. Samantha B's show airs on Wednesdays, so that was when that issue happened. And uh, at press time, she still has a show. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's interesting to the 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 timing of these reactions or non-reactions. Uh, so she said the thing and you said, oh, some people called her out, but let's be fair. It was a lot of people, a lot of people, even press that is more on the liberal side who would be on Samantha Bee's side. If we were picking sides, we're like, eh, it does seem uncomfortably similar. Of course it isn't in the sense that, well, let's just have a little sidebar here. Oh yeah. I would like to, and I speak for myself, I, you know, and you can speak for yourself. I will speak Thank for you. Lainey. Yes. I will unequivocally say here in this space that I do not think what Samantha B did is w the same as what Roseanne did. Uh, no. It, look, Roseanne uh, made an overt racial insult. Uh, but what Samantha B did, the reason I wanted to sidebar, no, I don't disagree with you. I don't think it was in remotely similar. But the reason this is such an issue is because she didn't call her a feckless asshole. The issue here is around the word cunt, right? Yep. And 
you know, I think that there are people who might believe that I'm protesting too much or trying too hard to be cool, but I've never really seen the punch in that word. I've never seen why it's such, why it's the worst word, why it's considered to be such a terrible insult. Do you, can you shed any light on this? This is my second etymology question of the podcast. But I, you know, I, listen, I can't, but I will say that maybe I'm not the best person to ask because I generally feel that polite society is way too precious about bad language anyway. I use, I call myself a cunt all the time. I use the word cunt all the time on Sasha answers. Sasha and I are constantly cunting each other. The word cunt appears on Laney gossip lots and lots of times a week. Um, but again, I am not that person. I do hear from people though, who are like, Hey, you know, I know it's your blog and everything, but can you just not swear so much? So I do know that there's a segment of the population that is like, very, very particular about swearing and cussing and certain words. Well, but I don't think it's just about swearing and cussing because I agree with you. Um, you know, uh, again, shout out to my mom who loves our podcast, but thinks there is language. Uh, but there's something I'm just going to get real here. There's something about cunt that is gendered that has been really used, uh, in a way that is, uh, you know, it's supposed to inflict violence upon women. It is supposed to be such a terrible word. That's sort of why there's such a reaction here. And this is also why this is such a, an interesting nuanced conversation, uh, if we can add any nuance to it, stay tuned, because of course, cunt is slang for a woman's vagina, right? Like that's the, that's where it comes from. And imagine the misogyny in thinking that the worst word you can possibly be called is a part of the female anatomy. Mm -hmm. That's what blows my mind about this yeah. and why I've never really understood. I do understand because I'm not an idiot and I live in the world and I know how people feel about yeah. women. But that's what's most interesting here, that cunt is not just a swear word, as you say. Like there are people who are going to be offended by fuck. But I think uh, Samantha B throws around all kinds of profanity on her show all the time. Um, but there is the the meshing of the word that means, you know, that, that it's a bad word to mean like a bitchy woman or something. Right. I, yeah, sure. I think that that is so, that word is so loaded for so many people that they were able to capitalize on it for those who, you know, wanted to take Samantha B down and wanted an answer to the Roseanne situation and then ended up accusing her of sexism. But I'm just saying, if she'd called her a feckless dick, it wouldn't have made a ripple. It would have made a ripple on Fox and Friends or whatever, I guess, because, but that would have been no matter what, you know? Yeah. If she had called her an uncouth woman, it still would have made those headlines. Um, I do think we're here because of that word. Yeah. That's my, I'm, you, you said speak for me. That's me speaking for me. Yeah. I think we're here talking about that four letter word. Sure. In particular. Yes. We're here talking about that four letter word and the ramifications. I have said my piece. I don't think it's the same thing. I do not think it was racist. Of course it wasn't racist. I, you know, I think that if someone wants to make the argument that it's sexist, 
perhaps we could have an argument. I don't think you can clearly come down on the side of it either. The way that Roseanne, there was like no dispute that Roseanne's tweet was racist, period. But I don't think it's really about, I, I guess this is where, I don't think it's really about a response to Roseanne. That is to say, I think this would have made the same number of headlines, whether Roseanne had been canceled or not, because people are looking for People who are going to make news of this are going to call it, you know, violence against Ivanka or whatever. <laughs> okay. What? Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, you know, regardless of whether Roseanne had happened or not, it would have been how dare you. That's our whatever. That's our royal princess or whatever. People who feel that way would have felt that way whether or not they were looking for Roseanne retribution is my point. Yes. They happen to happen close yeah. enough together that it was something similar pointed out. Yes, but it also gave, if you want to characterize it this way, the, the other side a distraction. Yeah, for sure. Yes, agreed. That is what that is what the connection to Roseanne is here. So for our purposes, though, what we want to talk about is Samantha Bee's reaction to the backlash and the uproar, which was a pretty swift, to borrow your word, apology. Yeah. I mean, yes, she apologized. She said, I crossed a line. I shouldn't have used that word. Uh, and it was swift. I believe it was within 24 hours again. Yes? Or probably less than. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about my reaction first to it because when I saw that she apologized, I actually messaged you and I was like, ugh, I don't think what she did was wrong and I wish she hadn't apologized. And this is what I love is you schooling me all the time and you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you, but now you move on with work. That an apology in many ways when you, quote, screw up can be a way of getting back to work. Yeah. And it, this is how it was employed, deployed. That's right. It puts out the fire, essentially. If people say, you were wrong, you were wrong, and you shout back, no, I wasn't wrong, then suddenly Twitter fucking roars to life and tells you all the ways that you were wrong, and people are screaming back and forth, which is, of course, exactly what did happen with Roseanne, right? Yep. Uh, if somebody says, you were wrong, and you say, yeah, I was, sorry, there's no recourse. There's no next punch that can be thrown. Yes. Uh, sucky babies can sit there and go, well, you were wrong, you know. You're like, yeah, I, I said that. I was wrong. Yeah. Yes. So it is the ultimate defusing tool. Yes. Uh, and so in this case, I do think it was really skillful. You know, should she have had to apologize for using that word, uh, especially a word that I bet if we dig deep in you know, some Netflix comedy specials is rife around all the time. She's only being criticized because she used it to describe America's princess. Yeah. Uh, TM. Um, but yeah, once you say it, there's nothing left to say. Mm -hmm. And if we are in a really reactive time, if she was at all worried about her show getting canceled, this is the only thing she can do to save her show. Sorry, I was wrong. Move on. You'll notice she didn't say, I'll never do it again. Yeah. She didn't say, I give my heartfelt apologies to uh, Ms. Princess Trump, uh, you know, royal of our nation. She just said, I'm sorry, and I shouldn't have used that word. 
In fact, she goes on to talk about how she distracted from the issue and she garnered the wrong type of attention. And basically she said, I'm sorry for distracting Donald Trump uh, with a shiny item. Yeah. Because I wish he could just go back and do his job. And I feel bad that I made him look away again. Yeah. And to that point, I want to shout out Dustin at Pajiba, who wrote a piece about why Samantha B was, um, well, here's the title of the article. Samantha B expands upon why she apologized for using that word. And she's absolutely right. So after her initial apology, Samantha was at an event and at the podium, she said this. Every week I strive to show the world as I see it unfiltered. Sometimes I should probably have a filter. I accept that. I take it seriously when I get it right, and I do take responsibility when I get it wrong. Um, IndieWire reports that B explained that she was trying to do right in her segment, quote, on the atrocious treatment of migrant children by this administration and past administrations, our peace attracted controversy of the worst kind. We spent the day wrestling with the re- We spent the day wrestling with the repercussions of one bad word when we all should have spent the day incensed that as a nation, we are wrenching children from their parents and treating people legally seeking asylum as criminals. If we are okay with that, then really, who are we? So, um, and then she goes to thank her network for keeping her on the air. But, and I, I really like this piece by Dustin. You know, he is, he too is echoing what you were saying about what that apology was achieving. It wasn't necessarily an on-your-knees castration of oneself. It was, I can't let this be the conversation that blocks a bigger, more important conversation, which is supposed to be the crux of my work. And the other part about it that I really love is she says, I, you know, I'm I revel when I get it right and I take it very seriously when I get it wrong. What I love about that, and this is something I've said on this podcast before, but you are going to make mistakes in your work. It is impossible to get through a career of any kind where you do anything good without making mistakes. I really strongly believe this because if you're not making mistakes, then you're not trying and risking and doing new things. And she's not saying like, Oh, again, I say she's not saying I'll never do it again because you can't promise to never make a mistake again, nor should you. I believe strongly that artists and anybody really should not be fucking up all the time. That's not the goal, but should be trying things with the assumption that, yet yeah, you're going to make mistakes because that's part of the game. So I love that she acknowledged that the mistakes are nothing that anybody loves, but you know, it's like skinning your knee when you're learning to ride a bike. It's unavoidable. It's going to happen. And you need to take it as part of the process. I think too, this was a really great example of crisis management. As you said, mistakes are going to happen. Or in this case, the mistake here was, if you want to call it that, a bad judgment call. Right. Right. It was a bad judgment call. It was scripted. Uh, You know, it clearly went over well in studio. And then by the time it aired, depending on who was watching, some people cheered and some people didn't. And that it it took off and had, had a life of its own. Right. What do you do then? In that moment, in that moment, it's blowing up. What do you do? In her mind, the assessment and that of her team, the assessment was, What is our bigger picture here? 
our bigger picture is our show does great things. We need to keep going on with our show. And so you swallow this one so that we can keep doing other things and back pocketing feckless cunt for somebody else next time. <laughs> well, especially because I don't believe, you know, I, I'm a fan of Samantha Bee. I, I watched the show and I don't believe this was her hill to die on, which is to say, you know, I believe that she believes in the line feckless cunt, but I don't believe that she thought she was wrong to call her out. Yeah. Or wrong to, you know, wrong to be critical. And so by giving, uh, or to use sports language, by taking the L uh, on the actual wording, on I shouldn't have done that, I went too far, she gets to keep her high ground where it counts. She gets to keep talking about the Trump administration and anything else she feels is you know, worthy of her scorn and focus. She gets to keep talking about whomever. She gives up the one word. This is the beauty of being anybody who works with words. There are a million other ways you can say that. There are a million other burns that you can use that aren't going to elicit the same amount of ire. And so, yeah, by by giving up the apology for using the C word, she gets to hang on and fight another day. Let me ask you a question, though, because there has been also, there have been other people who've had to apologize and done so, um, and we remain frustrated with them. Um, Lena Dunham comes to mind. I'm not saying that the things that Lena Dunham has screwed up over and the mistakes that she's made are the same as this one with Samantha Bee. I think that we've, you know, clearly unpacked why the controversy around Samantha B this time, I would say that specifically in Lena Dunham's case where she um, defended, um, what was his name, Murray Miller? Mm -hmm. uh, the accused ra rapist of uh, Aurora Perrineau. That's right. That it was universally agreed that um, her statement was not only offside, but it was counter to a position she had taken in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess is your question, why, why are we not more forgiving of that mistake? No, that's not my question. My question is, what is the difference between crisis management in Samantha B's case and crises management in Lena Dunham's case? One of, I think, the biggest things there is that this crisis presented itself to Samantha B, which is to say, uh, you know, every uh, every television show has a legal department, right? And they try to mitigate issues that might come up and issues of, of copyright or, or defamation or whatever. Lena Dunham wasn't operating in the context of a show. Some of her controversies have been, you know, when she was criticized yep. for girls being very white. She's operating in the context of Lena Dunham, mm -hmm. who doesn't have a legal department to vet her, you know. Yep. Uh, and there's no insurance against running your mouth off about something you clearly know nothing about. Mm -hmm. Everybody understands how this misstep by Samantha B, the person, but also the show, yep. happened. Right? Like, it's just a joke. 
everybody, I don't mean to minimize it for people who like felt like it was important or disrespectful or whatever, but I mean, it was clearly a joke in the context of a comedy show. Right. Uh, that used a word that was offensive. It's a real black and white situation. This joke happened. This word was not okay. That's what went on. The struggle around Lena Dunham is obviously she feels like she's doing the right thing because nobody's asking her to make statements about Murray Miller and Aurora Perrineau. Nobody's asking her to be the judge and jury, which she announces to herself she's going to be in the press. Nobody's asking her to, you know, show up to a Time's Up event and then, like, <laughs> call out people who said, no, you actually just showed up and weren't invited. Right. You know, she's walking herself into all these situations. And I think that's why we are frustrated more with people like her who seem to make the same personal mistakes all the time. Yeah. Not in the context of their work, but in the context of their personhood. Right? Yeah. It's a little bit the Lindsay Lohan principle. It is. And I also, you know, during the course of you sort of breaking that down, I also realized that it was the quality of the work. You know, there is writing and a writing room that goes into Samantha B. It's a weekly show. Mm -hmm. um, they put that together. There was a consolidated effort. You know, whatever bad judgment calls were made, there was a work. You can see the work process that went into it and went behind it. Similarly, with the response, with, you know, in crisis, here's how we respond. You can see that there was work in play. There was strategy. There was thought and consideration put into it. I there were many brains. That's right. I think in the case of Lena, specifically, let's call it in the Murray Miller situation, she drafted a statement. She wrote it. And as a writer, there didn't seem to be any editorial awareness. Well, interestingly, in that statement, I've always found it interesting. She goes back and forth between using the word I and using the word we, mm -hmm. indicating herself and Jenny Connor, uh, her writing and producing partner. And I've always wondered to what extent Connor was consulted on that and to what extent they worked together on that statement. Uh, that's not a question that can be answered, but it definitely feels that way, yeah. right? That it was something written in a fit of pique that she felt was super important yeah. and had to tweet or right. wherever it was that she ran it. I'm not sure that there were several drafts mulled over. hundred percent. That's yeah. right. And so that is sort of, when I wrote about it initially, that was my concern too. It was like, you're a writer. How many drafts did this go through? You know, why did it have to be released so quickly? Could we have slept on it? Could we have, right? Yeah. But what you're ultimately talking about there is ego, right? Mm -hmm. Samantha B, uh, by process of having a show, yeah. you everything goes through 100 checks and balances, right? The yeah. writer's room comes up with a thing. Yeah. They pitch it to the producers and to B herself who, you know, rehearses it and the crew watches and her, whoever is her number two, watches and reacts. So it went through a series of checks and balances. Then those people collectively, yeah. you know, said afterwards, well, we made the wrong judgment call. But that is because no one person wants to be on the hook for a bad decision on them by themselves. It's because shows are made and all kinds of products are made with many brains. Mm -hmm. There's ego in Alina Dunham going, I don't need another draft of this. I don't need to read this over in the morning. I am obviously so yeah. clear-minded and so, you know, so much the arbiter of truth 
that I can send this out tonight on no sleep. We're speculating. Maybe she wrote a few drafts. It didn't read that way. It didn't That's feel right. that way. And she most certainly didn't consult a cooler head yep. in terms of, you know, a third party who was like, hey, maybe don't. Yep. And, and that's frustrating. Nobody should be above the writing law, right? Yep. Like, yeah, consult people, ask people, get help. That's one of the reasons why she's frustrating. Which brings us to Drake. All the way back around to Drake. So a week ago, we declared Drake the winner. That lasted a weekend. I mean, he was the winner of the exchange at that time. Yes. And then he became the loser. Um, we have followed Drake. You, in particular, have followed Drake through his entire career. This is probably the biggest challenge he's had in his career. So in many ways, we can use that word, crisis. In, yeah. Yes. The story of, but I think, it, you know, it's interesting to discuss the ways in which it is a crisis and where it's a work crisis and where it's something else. The story of Adidon uh, has all kinds of really, really brutal, brutal disses and accusations, right? Uh, among them that Drake trots out his father for his own kind of self-promotion, uh, that you know, his his mother's romantic life comes up, uh, that Drake's producing partner, uh, Noah Forty Shabib, is, you know, is very ill with multiple sclerosis and arguably has not long to live. And of course, the the most damning accusation is that Drake is a deadbeat dad to uh, a baby uh, who I believe is meant to be four or five months old uh, with uh, a woman who with whom he's not in a relationship right now. That's right. So when we talked about Drake last week, uh, he was talking about songwriting in in his track that you so delightfully pronounce when you say Duppy Freestyle. Go ahead and say it. Duppy Freestyle. Amazing. <laughs> you know, it was about, hey, Kanye is not that strong a writer and don't you feel embarrassed to be in his company and, you know, that kind of thing. The response track is a totally different level, right? He call the 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 disses are about both of Drake's parents. They're about Drake's personal life choices. Um, there's no doubt. Oh, and of course, there was the cover art for the track, which was uh, Drake in blackface, which is at press time the only thing that he's responded to. That's right. Uh, he released a, a note on Instagram to explain why those pictures were taken and basically says they were uh, kind of satire for something he was mm -hmm. working on about 10 years ago to explain the difficulties of being a black actor uh, at that time. Look, the joke was that, and it's not wrong, that Drake came with a pretty conventional, now in retrospect, conventional diss track uh, response to Pusha T and that Pusha T came back to Drake with investigative journalism. Um, that's the joke. Right. <laughs> um, it's not wrong. No, it's a funny joke. Yeah. But it's also, you know, I'm not ever going to pretend to be a rap scholar, but it does kind of make you go, well, what are the rules of the game? You're talking about crisis management. And one of the things that, you know, I think is interesting when we talk about mistakes are going to happen is being prepared, even though you don't know what those mistakes are, 
But this feels like it's, you know, again, maybe I'm a stand, but it feels as though how do you prepare for something that is ostensibly kind of an attack below the belt? Well, I, and I hear what you're saying, and yet there are no rules to this game. And many people who are rap scholars would say so, right? That there have been many more brutal uh, diss tracks than this that, you know, get much dirtier. That's right. And also, I think what keeps it from even being out of bounds when it comes to rules is that in the accusation that Pusha is leveling against Drake about being a deadbeat dad, it undermines the image that Drake has created for himself. But you know what's so interesting about that, though, is I think that I don't disagree with you that that's a real problematic image that he now has to deal with, the idea of being a deadbeat dad. But the whole track does that. As This is my point, I think. As soon as you're calling out people's parents and their flaws, as soon as you're calling out people's friend and colleagues for being sick, like things they have no control over, that's all leading to a place where Drake, if he responds, has to break out of his own brand, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just the accusation of being a deadbeat dad. All of it is counter to the image that has been really carefully constructed. That's right. You know, the image of the guy who walks around handing out money to people on the street in the God's Plan video. Or writing a song called Nice For What about understanding the woman's experience. And you know what? Like, why does she have to be nice to these assholes? Uh, She should just check her angles, take her selfies, have a great night at the club, and go home and not have to worry about, essentially, dicks like him. I... I think that what we're getting at, though, in having this conversation and linking it with Samantha B, is I don't know at this point at press time, Drake doesn't have an answer. I don't know that there is an answer. And what do you do when you have miscalculated or under calculated? You know, he would have released Duppy Freestyle, Duppy Freestyle, however we want to say it. He would have released it with full confidence thinking, I got this. I won against Meek Mill. I know how, I called him really good at boy shit management. And so he would have been like, I think that this is going to be my counterpunch and I'm really confident. And it was, look, it was a counterpunch to the accusations in infrared, right? Like mm-hmm. it was a a tit for tat or a, you know, a punch for tat. Like it was, it was. At the time, sure. At the time. That's what At I'm the saying. Time, it was yeah. an answer. At the time, sure. Looking back though, is um, he would never have known, but Pusha did. He would never have known that Pusha had something else. No, You that's know, right. like, and so what happened was Pusha set a trap. He set a trap with infrared. Okay. He, he puts the trap on his record. Infrared is the last song. It is the song that targets Drake directly. Thinking, knowing, speculating that Drake's going to answer the way he did with Meek Mill. So what he did was he sets a trap and he holds back the real bullets. Do you think that that was the plan regardless of how good the track was? Um, the reaction to Duppy Freestyle was huge. 
Drake did own the weekend, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody was elated at how epic that was. Yeah. At the time, at the time, in yep. retrospect, blah, 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 blah. But had it been a weaker track, had the reviews and responses to it been less overjoyed, do you think that it would have been as obvious that Push's next move was to release all this dirty, dirty stuff? But I think that that's what I'm talking about, is that you hold it back and you see what the guy does. But that's what I'm asking. Do you think he was always going to come back with this regardless of how good or bad Drake's response was? I think so. Interesting. And so in talking about management and talking about strategy, did Drake not see a trap? Well, why should he? I say that because, as you say, in the Meek Mill battle, he came back, he won, end of story. I don't know if Meek ever responded again, but I think it was much too little, much too late, right? Like, yeah. That's why Drake came with back-to-back, right? He, right. Uh, there were two in a row. Exactly. So he's riding high. And this is, this, is, this is all of this is what fascinates me on the level of like, was it overconfidence? You know, when you get to the point of being Drake and for the last, let's call it, you know, generously, or, but not even that generously, three years, you have the Midas touch. Everything goes to number one. You own gaming, (laughs) you own music, you are the shit. Mm -hmm. You've won the rap battles too. He's the crossover artist though too, right? That's right. People who would never know who Pusha T is love watching Drake host Saturday Night Live. Like, you know, uh, want to see him profess his love to Rihanna on on stage. Like he's got bigger appeal Mm -hmm. than just in this area. Yeah. Taylor Swift was like that too. Right? Riding, riding high. Sure. Everything was going well. And then Kim Kardashian came along, dropped some receipts, and then everything else happened, blah, blah, blah. She has recovered, reputation, the tour's going great, la, 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 la. But that's, we were having a similar conversation then. The summer of the receipts, we were having a similar conversation then. Drake has now found himself in a position for the first time in his career where there are exposed weaknesses. And the next step is going to be what? Right before this podcast, I'm looking at an interview that Ice Cube, I guess, gave. And the headline is, Ice Cube says Drake's reign at the top of the rap game is ending. You've been at the top. Now you're going to stumble. You have stumbled. What do you do? What can you do? So my joke to you and another friend of ours on text was that I just kept picturing Drake reading uh, the lyrics to add it on, like playing it over and over and just muttering to himself while he looked at a picture of Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go high. When they go low, we go high. Um, I need to workshop it to get it down to tweet length, you know, but I still feel strongly about that joke. I feel good about it. Um, This is, you know, there's no response here almost because if you come back, with another track, there's no guarantee that there's not worse waiting, right? And the idea is, well, I can handle anything. Well, he wasn't expecting what's here, obviously, right? Uh, To release statements about uh, Mr. T's accusations are improper or rude or whatever. I mean, he kind of did that in the context of the blackface photos. Uh, 
but will feel like that, you know, he, he, whatever's going on in Drake's private life, if you justify it with a response, then you imply that it is worthy of the public's consumption, right? Like you make it their business. If you release a statement saying, I did not have sex with that woman, then you're making it everybody's business. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But if he stays quiet, the implication is, well, he couldn't respond. He had to stay quiet. He has nothing. Yeah. So I don't know if there is a response here. Last week, we talked about one of his lyrics in Duffy Freestyle, which is, I'm in album mode. Mm. And he stepped away from being in album mode to put together this track and got to enjoy the weekend. What this situation does undeniably has put so much more pressure on Scorpion. Right. Scorpion has to be like probably his best. Right. Which, as you say, given the past few years that he's had, is already a huge hill to climb, right? Because you have to be better and better. And now it has to be better still. Mm-hmm. It has to be his best work. Right. So he is now, I guess, what the next move is album mode on like Avengers time. Now, of course, one of the accusations uh, kind of hand-in-hand with the story of Adidon is the idea that Drake had uh, a collaboration with Adidas coming out that uh, that this kind of steps on, nods at. There are different rumors about how that was going to go down. But I would suspect that we will not see much of him uh, between now and the release of Scorpion. And so where this becomes really interesting is... Uh, He has a lot of dates planned. Like he has either, you know, is he going to, is he going to make good on those dates and do all the shows that he was supposed to do? Does he get the album out on time? Does he tuck himself away and hibernate and wait for it to kind of blow over? Um, This is where it becomes about commerce, right? Those are contracts. Those are things that he agreed to do. Um, But then, yeah, you got to be ready to either respond or ignore, and what does that do for your brand? And what does that do for your further sales? And what does that do not only for, as you say, the anticipation for Scorpion, but also what does that mean for the reaction therein? You have to, as we talked about with Serena, have all kinds of things lined up. So is he now shopping for the person who's going to do the sympathetic profile uh, you said last week about he doesn't do interviews that much, but maybe now he needs to. Maybe he's shopping for the person who's going to write the profile or do the interview that will drop around the same time, start a new press cycle. And what does he give up in that interview in order to spin the story? It becomes a lot of work that, yeah, he didn't necessarily anticipate. Now, I will say this for someone like Drake, Male artists, very, very popular ones to begin with. Forgiveness is available. Oh, yeah. Of course. I'm not worried. However, again, to go back to Samantha B, it needs to be delivered in a very, very intelligent and I, I hate to say it like this word, but authentic way. There's no way to scramble out of this at this point. But I mean, uh, there may not be, that's implying there's something to scramble out of. You know, uh, he 
Are you still holding out hope that the baby's not his? I, I, I don't care if it is or it isn't. I think what I'm getting at is like, you know, somebody calls you a deadbeat dad. That's a, that's an opinion question, right? Like he may have a kid, he may have 10 kids. It's kind of sort of not our business. The accusation that, hey, you're not taking care of this kid is what Drake has to defend himself against, right? So then, yeah, the question is, is it an apology or was it that he's been taking care of the kid and there's NDAs and blah, blah, you guys didn't know? Or what's going to be the, I guess the question is whether there is an apology to be made or whether it's just a spin into, oh, this is my new brand. And this is why, is it, I guess, an apology or is it an explanation? This is why it wasn't happening like that. This is why I didn't introduce my son or millions of sons or whatever to the world. So by taking the time, by not coming back, I assume, uh, by not dropping a track at midnight tonight, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, it becomes about what is the message he's going to send, not just mm -hmm. uh, whether or not he's sorry. Because I agree with you, like forgiveness, if it's necessary, is going to be there. Um, but reframing and having people re-embrace the new you, if that's who you now have to be. And maybe, you know, he probably has a few image shifts in mind for his career, right? We know that the best artists can transform and evolve. But this is rushing the timeline. He may not have been ready to evolve into his next brand of personality before, but yeah. now we're on a new timeline. Now you have yeah. to move that up. Because even if he produces DNA that says the, the boy is not mine and yeah. neither are any of the other kids, he also has to say, but I would love to be a dad and I'm looking forward to that or whatever. You yeah. know, it, it pushes a new narrative. It is an interesting lesson in fame though, as we can, like, as we, as we continue to assess it, study it, examine it, is that no one is immune from a tumble. No. Well, the higher you go, the more places there are to fall. And I will say that shame on us for not recognizing it seven days ago. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess, except, yeah, when, when that's the joy and the terror of working in this business is that the rules always can change, yep. right? And so not shame on us because we're allowed to be wrong too. Uh -huh. You make a mistake, you pivot, you re-change the game, and you come back and talk about what you thought <laughs> seven days later. Okay, so we've gotten a lot of emails and tweets about your favorite show, one mm -hmm. of your faves, the show that you for a long time have been yelling, chiding, side-eyeing me about not watching, which came to an end last week, The Americans. That's right. Uh, the series finale aired Wednesday night. I actually rushed home from an event to watch something on broadcast television uh, because there was no chance I was going to wait or not see it in real time. And yeah, there's been a lot of social media response. And obviously, as happens in the lead up to any finale, a lot of articles on a lot of outlets about all the various components that go into it. We'll get into that in a second, but I want to give you the opportunity to defend yourself once again. Why are you not watching the show? Why have you been uh, so 
blase about about not watching? I'm I'm don't like I really want to watch it. I just there's a long list of things I need to do and watch and read and it's like I have to get through to those first. But why? Like why I guess is this so low? What is it about the concept of the show which if you don't know is about two deep cover Russian spies who are living in the US uh, with their American children uh, that doesn't rocket it to the top of your list? I can't put my finger on it. I don't think that there's anything about the show that I hold against it. It's just there's so much fucking thing, TV shit to watch. I, I'm just going to tell you, like, there's there's stuff you can skip. You hand me your list and I'll I'll start striking through some well, things. Well, for, for example, you. these are the things that I've been watching lately. Like obviously I watch Serena. Uh-huh. And obviously I've had to catch up on Killing Eve and on The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, yeah, I I would I have more opinions about one of those than others, but we'll save it for another podcast. Then a couple months ago, I finally listened to you yelling at me about another thing, which is The Good Place. So I watched six episodes of that. Like, what are you going to strike off that list? Don't say Serena Williams. But that's five hours. That's an easy undertaking. I'm not saying you have to race through six seasons in time for the finale, although there were people who did. Uh, But I'm saying it's unlike anything that we have seen. And it is a really interesting, one of the reasons I'm really excited about it is because it reframed, especially Carrie Russell, uh, but Matthew Reese as well, in people's minds, they were maybe not seen as the dramatic talents that they have turned out to be. And there's kind of been a slow awakening and a slow realization that they are fantastic and really underrated. The other reason that I cannot believe this has not jumped over things is because this is your crack cocaine. These were two actors who got these roles and midway through the show's run, fell in love, moved in together and had a kid together. Like this is, you love that shit. Well, I will say this. For all the the attempts that you have made to get me to watch... I think that the last thing that you sent to me is what put me over the edge. And now I'm like, oh, my God. I did not realize that the wig game on this show was so strong. That's what you should have led with. Like, if there's one thing that gets me more than sex and like. And there's a lot of sex yeah, in the show. And you've told me about how hot the sex is. If there's one thing that gets me more than sex, it's hair. You know, that's true. That was a real error on my part. If yeah. we're talking about acknowledging our mistakes, you're right. I should have talked more about the hair. Yeah, hair and clothes. So all you needed to do, Duanna, was be like, the hair and clothes on this show are amazing. And I would have been like, oh, and we would have solved this problem like two years ago. Lesson learned. The reason that the hair and the clothes are such a focal point is twofold. The show takes place in the early 80s to begin with. Uh, and so there's a huge amount of eighties fashion and hair that's, that's taking center stage and it is really, really painstakingly done. The other reason is that as spies, our two leads often have multiple other identities that they're embodying. And there's a lot of fun that goes into making them up and you sort of 
are amazed that two people can look this different. But really, Matthew Reese, handsome Welsh man though he is, what do you do with the dude? You put on a bunch of different like colored wigs. Sometimes he has a, a obnoxious mustache. It's great. Uh, but it, clothes are clothes. The wig game for Carrie Russell, uh, who is Elizabeth Jennings and all her various alter egos, is is really stupendous. Well, I know that now. Um, so this is related to a piece in Racked that you sent to me. Carrie Russell's spy disguises have been the best part of the Americans. All the inspiration and 80s research that went into the many, many costumes. Okay, so you sent me this and I was like, oh, research, <laughs> clothing research, click. And of course, I devoured the whole thing. I loved all the pictures. I don't think it spoiled anything for me. And it was amazing. I love the fact that the costume designer meticulously walked the journalists through the search for the various items of clothing, the hair. Um, it all it surprised me where the research came from. I loved, you know, going through Facebook is what uh, <laughs> is is what was one of the things because people have been posting so many things on Facebook, old photos of their families, what right. they used 80s to wear, portrait studio things and whatnot that That's gave right. them inspiration. And so it wasn't just like calling up X Y Z designer or looking into the archives of Valentino. Like some of the items were just repurposed old clothes, literally from, I don't know, uh, yeah, used clothing stores. And, and also when they couldn't find something, they'd use a current item, but in a certain color um, and would tweak one or two things about it. And it was, it was done. Like, for example, this um, hilarious, I don't know, um, this hilarious, uh, here, where is it? Um, vintage Pendleton coat. Um, yeah. And it's, as, as as the costume designer explains, I guess Jennifer is the character that um, Elizabeth was playing. Jennifer is wearing a coat in that very specific 80s dusty rose mauve color. It doesn't look great on her skin tone, which also helps in making Carrie look more homely, which she is not, obviously. That was my favorite part of the article, this dusty rose, because it was. Like, this fucking dusty rose was a thing. Oh, absolutely. Back in the day. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that's amazing is, yeah, every other show, in the context of their characters, is trying to make each performer look as good as possible. But... The characters within characters that the Americans play are supposed, first and foremost, not to attract outside amounts of attention. It's norm core, essentially, at its best. It is trying to make them not only look of a time and of a certain personality, but also look utterly unremarkable. Jennifer is arguably the dowdiest of the characters that, like, the stunning Carrie Russell plays, but... Yeah, you can understand with the deployment of that jacket who this woman is, why she would buy a practical, wearable, you know, what looks like a windbreaker, essentially. Uh, and it tells you a lot about who that person is. That's what I love the most about costume design generally, mm -hmm. but especially on this show. It is never just clothes. It's one of the million reasons why you and I always say that fashion is never just 
fashion. Thank you. I was going to bring up the point and I know people would be like, shut up. That's all you ever do is bring up that point. And now you brought it up and we get to talk about it again. Yes. Style and fashion is more than just who are you wearing? It's why are you wearing? And it tells you things about the person without having to have it be said in so many words. You know, there's another outfit that is on D, the flight attendant in season five. If you watch the show, uh, this was when they were pretending to be uh, Tuan's mom and dad. Remember that? Uh, Guys, just email me. You're already emailing me, but honestly, let's just have this conversation. Uh, But what's amazing, this is a flight attendant and they talk about how she is supposed to look like she cares about her appearance. Flight attendants at that time had weight uh, weights that they had to maintain in order to keep flying, but she also wouldn't be laden down with money. Like this is such a mommy mom look with a sweater and a jean skirt, and yet it walks that line of being accessible for then, but also stylish for then, and telling us what we need to know about who this character was and what the people around her would assume about who she is. I love any conversation about costume designers, and we had one when we talked about um, Black Panther and what went into the costuming for the people of Wakanda and why. I think about uh, Kerry Washington on Scandal and how they made deliberate choices with respect to especially her coats. You know, she wore a lot of white, mm-hmm. um, off-white, cream white, all kinds of white, and I um, and I remember listening to a conversation, just analyzing Olivia Pope's white coatness and what it was meant to convey. That sense of like, here, like, like she was this fixer, the person who could like blanket and fix everything, whitewash a problem. Yeah, I mean there are layers upon layers, right? They referred to themselves as the white hats, i.e., they were the good guys. Yeah, there's uh, the pop of white against a black woman's skin, which makes her noticed and points out that this is a woman who wants to be noticed. There's the fact that, as a friend of mine once said, uh, a white coat is a Canadian woman's greatest indulgence. And I would extend that to a Washington woman, meaning that it's inevitably going to get filthy and grungy and so forth. So this is also a woman who, you know, either has the dry cleaning (laughs) wherewithal or the budget to have endless white coats because they are essentially semi-disposable in a climate like that. But then also in character development and character analysis, the juxtaposition of Olivia in all that white with her growing moral compromise as the show develops and as she gets herself in more and more tricky situations, every day she woke up thinking it was a restart. You know, that was a really interesting thing for me to watch Olivia go through, that at the very end of a night, after she told lies, um, betrayed people, every day for her was a reset. Oh, today, I'm not going to lie anymore. Today, I think I'm going to make a better decision. I love that you said that because I think that internal struggles like that, A, are huge in the Americans and B, figure into a lot of the television that we love right now. We also had on the table for today a show called Barry. And if you haven't watched Barry, you should catch up. There are only eight episodes. But one of the things I love is that the title character, Barry, has a habit of saying, 
now, meaning that starting right now, he's going to start being the person he wants to be. It's TV, and so it's never that easy, but I love that our clothing choices, as well as our dialogue, uh, make every day the point that we are trying to be the person we want to be, even if we fall super short. I also love here that we're getting maybe to some the boring details, but are sexy to us in the work of a costume designer in that they too need to go through the script with a fine tooth comb, but for different reasons. You know, your actors will go through the script to understand their characters and to learn their lines, sure, but your costume designer will also go through the script to understand the character. They may not have to learn the lines, but they have to understand the scene. And as a, a screenwriter yourself, how much detail are you going into when you're writing a scene um, about what your character is wearing? Well, I love that you asked that because it is considered to be a very rookie move to write something that says, Elaine, 42, sits at her desk in a stripy blue t-shirt and relaxed jeans because that's not really your job. Your job is to say... Elaine sits at her desk, uh, casual, messy wear that somehow looks like it costs a lot. Ah, uh, I love this. Right? I you love this. You evoke the look yeah. without prescribing the look. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, what I love about the screenwriting of this and the way that these disciplines are married is that, yes, the, the costume designer is going through and combing through the script for clues. But in the case of this show... Uh, Elizabeth and Philip, our main characters, are, of course, the American alter egos of the, their actual Russian names. But then, in turn, they're playing all these different characters that we would see recurring throughout the season or sometimes recurring through multiple seasons. And so the costume designer, whose name is Katie Irish, says that starting in season five, they actually, the writers presented the costume designers with character bios of the fictional people within the fictional people within the fictional show. Are you following me here? Yep. So if our characters were playing another character, they would have character bios that, quote, would often tell us whether the character is single, married, divorced, if they went to college, if they didn't, where their hometown is. These are things the audience doesn't necessarily need to know about that disguise, but it helps me really root the character in a real time and place and persona. The work here. Yep. This, is, this means that we're talking about someone doing the work about the imaginated... My brain is actually wrapping itself in knots here. Somebody is doing the work to describe to the costume designers who these fictional personas would be even though they don't actually exist. There is no Jennifer. Yeah. There is no Dee. There is no Stephanie. They are fake. They stop existing once Elizabeth Jennings takes off those disguises. But we need clothing to make them feel like real people. And that's also the beauty of the show, that all these disguises and all these personas feel real, feel as though they are alternate people, even though we know the whole time that that's Elizabeth in there. That's all you had to do. All you had to do. So, yeah. Well, well I'm out of breath. That's how yeah. how hard that was. But I 
This is a beautiful, beautiful article. Uh, if you never watch a frame of the Americans, you will still love watching how this came together. Uh, and we should shout out the writer as well, because it's such a brilliant idea. Uh, Cheryl Wishover wrote it. It's in Racked, and of course, we'll link to it. I want to actually make one final note that is not related, but um, it it pinged my mind because... I was reading this and it made me remember a podcast, another podcast that uh, I listened to, and I would totally recommend it to everybody listening. It's called The Paycheck. It's a Bloomberg podcast and it's about pay equality. And it's a podcast that aims to understand how we got to pay inequality or what the roots of it are. And they actually mention professions that women were primarily like held by women. And the relationship here between that podcast and um, the Americans is this flight attendant character that Elizabeth Jennings was playing um, because there was a time when flight attendants had to be single. Oh, yes. They they not, yeah. They not only had to be thin, but they actually could not be married. The moment you got married, you couldn't have your job anymore. That's how ridiculous certain employment standards were on women. I believe that was the case for teachers for a time as well. I don't have a citation to back myself up, but I there's something reminding me that I believe that was once upon a time the case. Now, I don't know exactly when that changed. Clearly, I want, I, I'm fully bought into the research that would have gone into the Americans. So by the 80s, that was perhaps beginning to change, even though there were still um, appearance standards for flight attendants. Clearly, they were uh, beginning to relax their personal standards of, you know, who could be married, because my understanding is that obviously Jennifer, is it Jennifer, the flight no, attendant? That's D. D. D, the flight attendant, had a child or an adopted child. She had an adopted child, but was publicly married. Like that was, she was right. married to, I don't remember Philip's yeah. name in that, in that scenario. But, but it just pinged me, the evolution of all kinds of jobs, a costume designer job and the evolution of a flight attendant job that... You know, in theory, you can be a flight attendant now and you can actually have a happy marriage. But there was a time when that was, if you were a married woman, that was off limits to you. Did you ever read Coffee, Tea, or Me? Yeah. It was fascinating. I don't know where I got a copy of it sometime in high school and I read it constantly. Yeah. Because it seemed like a story from another world, even though it wasn't that long ago. Anyway, The Paycheck, check it out. It's a really, really good podcast, again, about the origin and the roots of pay inequality. Um, And that mention about the flight attendants and the different kinds of jobs is in the second episode, which actually does go into understanding or at least tracing back when women started entering the workforce in specifically in the United States. And... Not that you needed me to pitch again to the Americans, but you reminded me that another brilliant thing about this show is that it's set in the early 80s, and so there are only so many professions that Uh Elizabeth can be disguised as, and they're really interesting. There is somebody who works in fashion, but there was a Mary Kay uh, employee. There have been, you know, uh, there are a lot of housewives and other iterations therein, uh, people who volunteer at church. It's a really interesting investigation of what work looked like not that long ago and what was a feasible place where you could see a woman at work. All right. So I will be checking out the Americans for the wig game and the clothing game. 
It could have been, it could have been two years ago, Duanna. Poor you. Yeah. Let that be a fault. learning opportunity for you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to another week of Show Your Work. We love talking about all this stuff together, but with you because your notes and emails and comments really like delight us and get passed back and forth in texts and emails late at night. And you're very much a part of the conversation. Thank you so much. As we approach the end of our second season, which is coming up in a few weeks, um, please continue to send us those notes, sharing with us your thoughts on communication, um, your thoughts on exchanging. For example, we got a lot of letters last week about sharing salaries. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to us about these kinds of professions, flight attendants, um, 80s jobs that were limited to or available to women. Talk to us about costume designer jobs. Talk to us about setting traps and the one that Drake walked into. And the expectations around what being a parent, male or female, looks like in your office and in places where you have worked because, God, we know there are stories there. Until next time, show your work, work hard, uh, leave comments on iTunes, check us out on Google Play and Spotify, and we'll be back next week. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.